0: Well, season two continues to have good episodes, or at least for the last couple here. This is actually considered one of the more popular episodes by quite a few people, except for Miss Fontana. Now, I saw that notation, and I saw a couple other people quoting that, so I decided to hunt down the actual interview where she gave that answer. This is actually funny. So, it was for uh, the Writer's Archive. It's a, a... Audiovisual archive kind of thing. It Basically, just a bunch of rapid-fire questions to get down stuff for public records. So now there's a video bit of evidence of people being interviewed to give behind-the-scenes information on stuff. Just pretty simple stuff. Archiving. And so the question was very simple. What's, what's your worst favorite? What's your least favorite episode? And Ms. Fontana's response is to go, oh, gosh, I'm not sure. And she's clearly completely unprepared for the question. So finally, she kind of hesitatingly says, I, I guess doomsday device. Uh I know it's popular, but, you know. And that's about, so no reasoning is ever given. I just find that kind of funny. Anyways, this was uh, written by Norman Spinrad, who also dislikes this episode. He only did this episode of Star Trek. He was actually supposed to do a couple other things, but one of his scripts didn't end up getting picked up, and obviously phase two never happened, so that never became a thing. We also saw the awesome William Wyndham, as Decker, who did a really good job here. Also, a quick, uh, before I talk about him, a quick return from Elizabeth Rogers, who plays Lieutenant Palmer, aka The Companion, back in, uh, back in the Cochrane episode. Also, Sol Kaplan introduced another series of music for this episode, which is another bit of semi recognizable truck music. You know, the countdown music, I think, is what it's actually called. Good stuff, which will be used in a few episodes after this, but honestly, regardless of its reuse, it just works brilliantly here. I want to add something really quick. As I mentioned, this is my first time going through the remastered stuff. This is the best remastered episode so far by a huge margin. The new effects do a really good job of selling the episode. I already liked this episode. This is already among my personal favorites. And after watching it with analysis mode, it definitely deserves that spot. But the new effects, I think, really help it. This is kind of like the the Battle of Yavin equivalent, in my opinion. Also, a little bit of tidbit, which never occurred to me before, probably because names are names, but Decker, as in the Decker over in the motion picture, was actually supposed to be the son of Decker, as in Commodore Decker, in this episode. What's funny is, by basically every account, that is true. It was in the novelization, it was in the original script treaties, and it was in, um, the, in some of the original drafts of the script. But I'm not sure if it's in the final script, and it's certainly not in the movie. So it's just kind of there. Just interesting to think about. <clears throat> so, <sighs> let's get into the episode proper. In the original thing, actually, I want to comment on this really quick. Right about this point in time, they'd started merchandising. Merchandising. Merchandising uh, Star Trek a bit. And they actually had models of the Enterprise you could buy. Well, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but this show was having budget issues really badly. Which is funny, because they're actually going to get worse in Season 3, if you believe it. So, they were trying to save money everywhere. Would you believe this was actually a money-saving episode? No, really. Think about it. We've got the bridge the transporter room, the Jefferies tube, then we've got a random hallway, a room, the new engineering set, which actually this is the first time we see that, and the auxiliary control room, which is actually attached to that. All of this is sets that already existed for Enterprise, so no new sets had to be built. Just a little bit of work to make some of the constellation look like it's a little bit damaged. That's it. Then we have the visual effects, which admittedly are visual effects, but that's that and the hiring on of the guest star is all it was. So this is actually a cost-saving episode, which I find hysterical for for a vehicle that's usually considered an action piece, at least by TOS standards. Anyways, <laughs> um, so they. I'm sorry, I'm getting off topic. The whole thing I was leading towards there is they bought one of the models to use that for the Constellation. If you ever watch the original versions, it's really obvious that the model for the Constellation is way worse quality than the model than the ten foot monstrosity they were using for the Enterprise. It's fine, it works, it's just interesting to think about. Anywho, so we find out that there's this system which has been smashed. Oh god, except for the star. They actually specifically mentioned the star is still there, but the planets are super smashed. Well oh, that sucks. And then they find the constellation, which is sucked which is super smashed. Well that sucks. It's the first time we've seen another Constitution class ship, consequently. So, they mentioned that the bridge is uninhabitable. Now, I just want to give special praise to that line, because that, that one line reduced the budget of this episode drastically. Because now, they could have set most of the Constellation stuff on the other bridge, but in order to do that, they would have had to redress the bridge substantially to make it all damaged and injured, and then fix all that afterwards. So instead of doing that, they just have those much smaller sets I mentioned earlier, which can show damage, but if if you're actually paying attention to the episode, they barely look damaged. They barely look different at all. So it's fine, and it saves a lot of money and makes the episode uh, take less time to make, too. So that's good, too. So Wyndham, yes, I, I mentioned William Wyndham. He's great in this episode. Like, legitimately awesome which is hysterical, because if you've seen any interviews by him or any of the things where he's talked about this, he's mentioned that he wasn't trying. He was, in fact, acting like he was in a Saturday morning cartoon. If that's what he considers Saturday morning cartoon acting, I don't know what else I should see here. See, the thing is, I've heard some people theorize that this is because he was so emotionally traumatized that playing himself over the top like this leads into that. And, actually, I kind of agree with the idea. He portrays someone who is absolutely emotionally destroyed. I'm curious what he thinks good acting would be in this case. You know, if it would be very subdued or whatever. Because the way he portrays himself, he he does come across as a lunatic. Which is exactly what we need. The initial scene with him. The severe emotional distress. I couldn't... I couldn't, and the way he just, he can't even speak properly. The way he just breaks down as Kirk's like, come on, come on, give me information, man. It's like, Kirk, dude. (laughs) But the way he sells that scene hits me emotionally every time I see it. Because you can feel that emotional distress just radiating off of him as, again, he, he is rendered incapable of even processing properly. I want you to picture this for a moment. I want you to picture... A bunch of people that you care about. I don't know if I'd use the word love. But they definitely matter a lot to you. Now imagine they're all being tortured and killed. And you can't do anything but listen. How would that feel? Yeah, that's that's just... And his breakdown. Oh my god. I'm the last man. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> Just, wow! I'm sorry for continuing to praise this, but you can really feel that. You can really feel it in his presentation and in his emotion. Then we start learning a little bit about the planet killer. First of all, we learn that it uses pure anti-proton beams. This is interesting in its own right. Ignoring the fact that this is apparently extremely devastating and is emphasized to be so, if you pay attention to... to, mm, Let's use Star Trek Online as a specific example... Star Trek Online, okay, so all the damage types in Star Trek Online are mostly the same. It's just mostly down to which color of beam or, or you know, blast that you want to use. That is a change. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be antiprotons were the best. I think they're still technically the best. It's just by an absolutely minuscule amount. But I bring this up because in STO, ignoring the, what's available for the player... There's not many races, like every race has their own damage types. You know, the Romulans tend to lean on plasma, the Klingons lean, lean on disruptor, disruptors, the Federation leans on phasers, right? The Voth and the Heralds are the ones who use anti-protons. The big boys, the giant, massively technologically powerful empires are the only ones who really use anti-protons with any regularity. It's, I only mention this because there's always been this sort of thing. That, that mostly comes up in non-canon stuff, but it's this this kind of impression that anti-proton weapons are the big weapons. They're as, they're as big and dangerous and powerful as they get, and are also very, very difficult to actually get to work properly, hence why they're so rare. Anywho, <clears throat> so we find out this sucker is carving a path from outside the galaxy in, and is going straight through the habitable zones. This, of course, then leads to uh, the dilemma. The... The dilemma here is, I actually like this, the dilemma is not, our, you know, is the ship in danger? Which, I mean, it kind of is. But for all intents and purposes, the ship is not really in danger. At multiple points in this episode, they could just have pieced out. And in fact, Spock was consistently saying, we should go do that. No, the actual danger is much more terrifying. There's a colony nearby, Rigel. And there's also a lot of other planets, which this, is, this thing is going to go smash and destroy and kill millions of people. It's actually interesting because the distance of the dilemma almost makes the scenes work a lot better. Because rather than we must save ourselves, it's, it's hard to even process how many people will die if we fail here. It's even harder to process how many people have already died. Then we finally see the planet killer. Now, I mentioned before uh, Norman Spinner, Spinrad didn't like this episode. One of the biggest complaints he mentions, and it's even in the book here, is he hates how the planet killer looked. He was envisioning this big organotechnic thing with just bristling with weapons, and instead what we get is a cone. Allow me to disagree with him on this point. I think this thing looks brilliant. Now, granted I had the remastered version, but I still think the original design is perfectly acceptable. Why? It gets across a a style which I'm I'm not sure how to describe it's crude looking Um, one might almost say dull there's just a it's I'm trying to explain this and I'm gonna fail at it it's like watching a rock slide there's nothing really elegant about it there's no fanciful design there's no esoteric anything it's just it's just a bunch of rocks that are absolutely terrifyingly devastating right now, here in the Path of the Rock's Light, you're, you're probably dead. The, the odds of you surviving that are minuscule. And that's exactly what it's like with this thing. You just see this massive behemoth calmly and slowly moving through space. And the cold, ca- carved rock look of its neutronium hull, hull naturally contrasts the actual j- central maw which looks like it's an Inferno, just a furnace blazing. And that's, of course, where the beam comes out. And that's it. Those two things describe the ship in its entirety. It's a cone of neutronium surrounding a burning Inferno. But the way it works and the way it is presented is beautiful. And I think absolutely adds to the, to the aura of menace that this thing has. And honestly, this is probably the gamer in me peeking out here, but what I was reminded most when I look at this thing, especially in the remastered, remastered version, is Lavos. This thing's terrifying. I am, as always, curious what you guys think on that. So it's finally revealed, and it gets one shot out, and one shot completely knocks the Enterprise flying, and also damages the transporters so they're barely working. <laughs> I really like that. On the one hand, I was like, well, wait a minute, shouldn't the blast be more d- damaging than that? But then I started thinking about it. What it sounds like this thing does is it sustains its blast in order to break up planets, which would make sense. So what happened here was basically a boop, a poke. One poke of this thing severely damages the Enterprise. Now, the thing that kind of makes that less impressive is that later on it gets several other pokes, and it's just like, how are you continuing to survive this? But nevertheless, the, the scale of the damage of this thing is gotten across very efficiently. This then leads to me talking about a book. You ever read Vendetta? It's by Peter David, I think. Uh, it's not one of his better novels, but it's an interesting one. It actually centers around both the Borg and the Planet Killer and how those two kind of connect with each other. I think the Preservers are involved there as well. It's been a while since I read it. I think my mum actually owns my copy of it at this point. Or rather, it's at her house, however you want to think of that. Anyways, <clears throat> I mention that because it gives a lot of interesting backstory and insight into how this thing works. There was originally going to be a sequel to this sucker. At least, the intention was to leave the door open for a sequel. I'm saying that wrong. The original intention was that this thing was now a solved problem. There was actually a line in the original script about how all they'd have to do is put a bunch of torpedoes on an asteroid and fling it inside and... Problem solved. Then that was taken out to specifically leave the option for a sequel in the future. And then when they were working on the movies, this was one of the things they looked at as one of the possibilities. Instead, obviously, they went with Space Seed. Just wanted to comment on that because it's it's obvious this is one of those things that a lot of people have gotten the attention of and the eye of and it's been in a lot of apocryphal stories in fact there is actually a planet killer in star trek online and it is a pain to fight because holy crap because you can only damage it down the maw which is where its attacks come from and its attacks will absolutely destroy you makes sense right its greatest weak point is also its greatest strong point so there's kind of a a risk reward scenario there, and you really need to rely on your speed and mobility, but I'm getting off topic. This then leads to one of the two major talkie points of the episode Spock versus Decker. Now, who's right? Which one of them is right? Which one of them is correct? This dilemma is something I've actually referenced before over in Best of Both Worlds Part 2. and something I've actually wanted to talk about for a while because it boils down to one of those core human elements. I don't see a lot of shows or movies or books or games really discussing this theme. It's the theme of hopelessness, really, but also defiance. The reason I say those two things together is because defiance is not hope. Hope is things will get better. Defiance is things are bad, so screw you. I'm going to do everything I can to spit in your face as I fall because I'm not going quietly. Defiance. That's Decker. Oh, sure, you could say he's got the Cat and Ahab thing, but by all accounts, the Moby Dick stuff was not really an intentional reference with regards to this episode. It was just something that was just kind of a undercurrent theme. You know, obsession of revenge doesn't necessarily boil down to Moby Dick. We've got plenty of other examples of that in real life and fiction. Thank you. So, <clears throat> you know, we... He, he was defiant. We have to fight it. We have to destroy it. We have to kill it. This thing has to go down. They, My crew did not die in vain. I did not survive in vain. This has to happen. Now we contrast that with Spock's utterly brusque, cold, brutal logic. We can't defeat that. We need to peace out and get a message to Starfleet to deal with this thing properly. Who's correct? The answer is, of course, both of them. Although, that's my opinion, and that's why I hesitated and wanted to give you know, those questions earlier so you guys can give your responses before I even mention it. Because this is a surprisingly nuanced situation. There's, there's something innately human about Defiance. And there's also the fact that Defiance can work. It does in this episode, even. But I stress that word, can. Because, again, Defiance isn't really about winning. It's about screw you. It can lead to winning, if the dice go just right and everything lines up perfectly and you have no issues and no issues and no problems and everything's just smooth and then it's oh my god it actually worked which is what happens in this episode the reason you're probably thinking why did you bring up best of both worlds part two you remember those little probes i'm sorry so i see there's these little attack craft from the uh, utopia planitia defensive field and they go to attack a borg cube in best of both worlds part two The cube literally doesn't even slow down as it destroys them, just effortlessly destroys them and then keeps moving. Now, I mentioned back there the comparison to this very episode and that concept of defiance in the face of the absolute implacable, in the face of the juggernaut. I then had 7 billion comments, slight exaggeration, telling me that, no, that's just an automated system. I don't actually know if it is automated or not. It was mostly people saying they think it's automated. If it's automated, then ignore all of that, because none of that has any impact. Yeah, just send more send more droids, because we're all Darth Malik today. But if it wasn't automated, which is what I still think in headcanon, to be completely honest with you, then what we have is Commodore Decker. We have to do this. We have to fight it. We're going to die. Okay. Let's go. And there's something understandable about that, you know, something relatable about that, which I don't really know how to put into words. Now, ironically, the best choice here would actually probably be to do both, to accomplish both things. But thanks to the Planet Killer and the Unique situation, they don't have the availability to do both. So they are stuck picking one or the other. Quick aside, McCoy says he's totally willing to say that Decker is unfit for command medically. Spock says, you, of course, have scanned him with all your tests, right? And McCoy's like, well, no. But then McCoy says, it's okay, though. I'm a trained psychologist in space psychology specifically. And with my expertise, which has always been used in a court-martial, in the episode Court-martial, I can totally go ahead and say, oh, no, none of that happens, right? Sorry. Moving on. I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes here because I want to talk about this next scene in Very So So then there's some action stuff happens. They move the Constellation. They save the Enterprise. Woo! I wonder if they lack probes. Not for the, the, the ship, but I mean, can't they send out a probe relay something to send a message to Starfleet to get word out? Anyways, whatever. What happens is Kirk gets a hold of the Enterprise. Now, I'm not going through the whole scene, but I I wrote down names because this is important. This progression is brilliantly written, and I can't believe I never noticed this before. Kirk picks up Matt. Notice he says that. Matt. He says his name. Because remember, uh, Kirk and Decker are friends. They've been friends for some time. Then his first response, what happened to Spock? Because, of course, he's concerned because his thinking is, oh, God, if Matt had to take command, something happened to Spock. So his first thought is concern. Then he starts to frame out, oh, so you're the lunatic that did this. Then, Decker responds by saying, Kirk, rather than Jim. And this thens to Kirk calling him Commodore, and him calling him Captain. Kirk then p- p- smashes down the hammer. On my personal authority, you're going to deal with this. This is one of those fun ones. Um, technically, a crew of a ship is more beholden to an admiral than their captain they've served with for several years, but in a crunch, who do you think they're going to listen to? And that's exactly what happens here. Spock gestures. To the security guards. And they immediately are like, yep, nope, we're here to take him down. And he's like, you're bluffing. I never bluff. And Decker's face kind of changes. He doesn't soften. It's just more like there's this resignation there all of a sudden. It's like, you're right. I guess you don't bluff. Okay. I think that's the moment he decided to go ram the shuttle down the thing. To suicide. To end his life. And to try to do it in one last act of defiance. My thoughts. I don't know if that's true or not. The whole episode frames him in a way that you could understand. I I can understand someone saying that Matt Decker, Commodore Decker, is an obstinate bureaucrat. I would like to give my opinion that he is not. Well, he is shown in the usual antagonistic role, it's only for the middle part of the episode, and it's resolved relatively quickly. It's also worth noting the episode goes out of its way to, A, characterize him both before and after this event as an extremely sympathetic individual, and, B, really emphasize the amount of trauma and tragedy this guy has gone through. It is also, once again, worth noting that he... he's suicidal. He is actively suicidal. Spock even calls him on this, and he only relents because he's going to lack lose the ability to commit suicide if he admits it. Oh, that's relatable. So then he gets in the shuttle. Actually, really quick. I love the fact that he gets into a fistfight because we got to have an action sequence. We got to have a fistfight on Star Trek. I'm not even mad, it's just funny how they slide in fights into this show. Anyway, so they has the big fight, and naturally a captain is more than matched for a trans-security personnel because this is Starfleet, god dang it. We've got to have the best... Party. Well, this is TOS-era Starfleet. All the captains have got to be... I know he's a Commodore, whatever. This then leads to him getting in the shuttlecraft and heading out. And notice two things happen in this scene. First and foremost... When Kirk calls him, it's not Commodore. It's not Decker. What does he say? Matt! Matt. He's reaching out to the person. He was upset at him for taking his ship and endangering his ship. Because Kirk cares about his ship more than anything else. That's always been true across all of TOS. But it's not that he doesn't care about his friend. And that's why he reaches out with Matt there. I just point all this out, the naming thing. I'm kind of done with it now. Because he calls him Matt for the rest of the scene. He does all this because this is wonderfully written script. The, the escalation, the usage of titles and names back and forth really adds to this dynamic. And like I said, I cannot believe I never noticed the details of this before because I'm apparently a moron. He goes down, and he goes to, to die. Quick aside. Um, have you ever been through something really horrific? I hope to God you have not. I have. More than once. And... If you told me that I had to go and face that again, even knowing that I would die in the the attempt, the dying in the attempt would be a relief, if you know what I mean. But I'm not sure I could face that with dignity. I, I, I don't think I'm strong enough, to be completely honest. I'm not sure that I would have the ability to do that other than a sobbing, screaming mess. Shrieking in terror, you know? I point all this out because Decker has... The episode hammered the point in over and over and over just how traumatized Decker was by the events of of this episode and, and just leading up to it and how he is barely holding it together. He probably felt, the actor probably felt that he was overacting, but again, I think he nailed it. I think the presentation of him descending into what is effectively a screaming, sobbing mess, we don't hear it, but we see it as he's descending into his own personal hell, that horrible trauma he survived. It's the second time that's been relatable. The best part is it's not actually in vain. Truthfully, if I'm being honest, the answer here is a little bit obvious. I mean, it has a giant weak point. Come on, it's right there. (laughs) Honestly, I would have thought of just tossing a bomb and throwing it in well before, you know, the idea of throwing the Constellation in. Either way... You know, the rest of the episode kind of plays out. I don't have much to say about it. There's that wonderful countdown music. I looked up something. The constellation's going to go up with the equivalent of 97 point blah 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 megatons. That's a really big explosion. How big? The Tsar Bomba was 58 megatons. Give you a little bit of scale to understand the concept there. You know, the bomb that people could see and hear from 100 miles away. And other details and factoids I'm not going to bore you with right now. But because of Decker's defiance, they got lucky. They discovered a weak point, and they were able to exploit it, and his death was not in vain. They even discussed this towards the end of the episode. I, I plan on saying he, he died in, in service of his duty. He's going to be posthumously rewarded. I like that idea, and I like this episode. Um, I already talked about that, so I guess I'm done here. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts as always, guys. See you next time